So once again, we're joined by Dr. George Sheeran of Bradford University. And in the previous podcast, we discussed the development of the Yorkshire seaside holidays on the wider coast. In this episode, we'll narrow our focus on one town, Filey, and we'll attempt to focus that even more so onto one street, the Crescent, although doubtless will disappear up all sorts of uh, side streets. Indeed, this podcast comes from the Langford Villa on South Crescent, built around 1854 by Thomas Dickinson Hall, at one time the Sheriff of Nottingham. Langford Villa has enjoyed a rich history featuring Sir Joseph Terry, Evelyn Abbott, who was a, a classical scholar from Balliol College, Oxford, and Paddy Riley of the Dubliners. And earlier this year, Langford Villa featured on BBC Two's A House Through Time. So it's an appropriate location to record this podcast, and I want to thank the owner, Bill Rustling, for his permission to use it. And by the way, if you want to stay at Langford Villa, you can. If you put it into any popular search engine, it will appear and you can make your, your bookings. So, George, the Crescent would, what was now the Crescent would have been an open field. John Wilkes' unit, a Birmingham solicitor and land, land salesman, appears on the scene. This is Fields. How does he go about developing it and selling? A, a couple of questions arise there. How did he sort of know to come to Filey? John Wilkes' unit is, as you say, a Birmingham lawyer. By the time we get to the date of the 1830s, he's, I think, in his 60s. So uh, how does somebody in their 60s from Birmingham suddenly light on Filey as a place to develop? I think the answer's twofold there. Firstly, he's spent a lot of his career not only in the law, but also in developing parts of Birmingham, a good deal of Smethwick, for instance. So he has experience of that. And he also has two sons, John Jr. and George Unit, to help him. Secondly, the other problem is, yeah, you say one big field, I'm going to argue with you there. Uh, it's actually several big fields. <laughs> and that, that's a key to it, uh, so understanding the, the complexity of the enclosures it. That's right, thing. yeah. So, so the land's in several different ownerships, so he has to go around uh, wheeling and dealing with all of them, buying up chunks of land. Plus the fact that at the very southern end, the land has already been taken by um, a Leeds brewer, connections to Huddersfield, I should say, uh, Henry Bentley. Henry Bentley is of the Eschild Well Brewery at Woodlesford near Leeds. In around 1837-8, he acquires land at the southern end of the Crescent, which isn't the Crescent then, he just acquires land in Filey, builds himself a fine villa, ravine villa, stands on a sort of sea creek, uh, and develops a house and a bit of a landscape garden around it. Very mm. much detached from Filey, because if yeah. the Crescent is socially detached from Filey, the Crescent isn't there, so he, yeah. he's very much on, out on the limb, isn't he? Yes, he is. Uh, and when you look in the first census, of, I think it's the 1841, it's certainly in the 1851, Bentley isn't there, but the census enumerator puts in brackets, occupied in summer. The census usually takes place end of March, beginning of April, I should say. So it's very much a summer residence, and there's some excellent evidence for that there. So it's a place of retreat, get away from the cares of business at the brewery, although I don't know if you have too many cares there, I don't know. <laughs> um, there's an obvious uh, retreat there, isn't there? Um, <laughs> yeah. Depends how much you enjoy your products. It does, doesn't it, yes. And there's a couple of others at uh, the other end, at the north end. They kind of stake out, mark out the land between Bentley's Ravine Villa and then up at the top, a couple of other villas. One was the Villa Northcliffe of a whole wine merchant and shipper and another villa, South Cliff Villa, originally, I think, the home of seaside home of uh, Richard Oliver Gascoigne, a uh, landed family of the, of the Leeds area. Is that, the, is that what is now the Evron Centre? That's right, yes, that's the one. Uh, taken over and rebuilt 
early in the 20th century, I think. Then. Um, so the land in between, then, is vacant. So how does this Birmingham lawyer get all of it? Well, he's a friend of uh, Sir Robert Lawley in Birmingham. There's a great deal of charitable work with Robert Lawley. Lawley, through his mother, has Yorkshire estates, and it may have been that Lawley has said to him, if you're looking for more land to develop and develop a seaside resort, have you thought of Filey? Because Filey although it doesn't have much accommodation, is nevertheless mentioned in all sorts of early guides to the coast and places like Scarborough as uh, a sea bathing place, you know, three miles from, or ten miles, isn't it, I think, from Scarborough, where people visit, but they don't stay there because there's no facilities. A unit comes in. I would guess, and it's a big guess, but I would guess on the advice of uh, Lawley. Unit's never going to build houses, is it? And he's not looking to sell the houses. So who are the people that appear... And how does he attract them? Does he advertise for people to purchase these sales, uh, plots of land? Yeah, it's good. It would be good to know more about that process. I, I can completely agree. He gets a Birmingham architect, a, m a man named Charles Edge, uh, to draw plans. By plans, I mean actual plans in the map sense of uh, what the Crescent, uh, the format of the Crescent will be like, how many plots there will be, and so okay. on. It's not about how the houses are going to look. That's right. It's about the plots of land, and then the person that buys the plot will then decide what the house or building is going to look. Some of the the, the land it, and the buildings that appeared upon it was um, retained by unit, and I think probably for the first, uh, because if you don't know the crescent, well, it's 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 a shallow crescent. At the centre is an hotel, and then there are terraced shortish terraces which make up the uh, uh, arc of the crescent though it is a very shallow arc now the first of those terraces i think probably was to the design of the architect that uh, unit employed quite possibly john barry of scarborough barry was one of the scarborough architects uh, local architects therefore who designed quite a number of houses uh, in the area it's difficult to decide, though, because Barry is certainly there. He appears in correspondence with um, Unit. But Barry, of course, is also a contractor and builder and makes bricks <laughs> as well. So whether he was just the contractor for, say, somebody like Edge, who um, Unit had got from Birmingham, Edge seems to have been his designer, or whether he was the actual architect is difficult to say, except it becomes even more complex. So if you go to the Library of Birmingham, there, there is an archive of Charles Edge's uh, work. In amongst them appear one or two designs by John Barry for the Crescent at, at um, Filey as well. So I don't know. <laughs> it's a jigsaw puzzle, so to speak. So the first building that appears in the Crescent, which confusingly now is the second block along, Yes. Appears in a style, and I do, I enjoyed your description um, in an, an article you wrote about the Crescent, a lingering Greek revival style. Yes. What is a lingering Greek revival style? Sounds like that joke <coughs> about what's a Greek urn, doesn't it? it? <laughs> <laughs> but no, that first block in the Crescent represents is, is the end almost of, of a classic, a long classical tradition from the late 17th throughout the 18th century, going from Baroque styles, you know, big curly. Uh, sometimes asymmetrical styles, but classical based on the uh, uh, architecture of ancient Rome. It's important to say this here. Going through Palladianism, so based on the designs of the uh, Italian Renaissance architect Andrea Palladio, through to what becomes known as Neoclassicism, and that's a much more austere form of classicism, based on new discoveries, archaeological finds in places like uh, Italy, but also Greece. And Greece has been a closed country since the 16th century. Part 
of the Ottoman Empire, if you went there to try and see what real Greek architecture was like, you usually ended up being killed. Very few people went there and survived and tried to do that, but from the mid to later 18th century, the, company, the country starts opening up and lots of designs and drawings, both by uh, British and by French architects, of Greek, actual ancient Greek architecture start uh, appearing. So from about 1790 right the way through to about 1830, styles that were popular were often based on Greek ornament and form. So the use of Greek order columns, the use of um, uh, the sorts of decoration you would find on some ancient Greek buildings and so on. It becomes so popular that perhaps from the, the beginning of the 19th century Britain was said by contemporaries to be in Greek fever. But by the time you get to the 1830s that style is coming to an end and it's the end I think of a long-run classical uh, love affair in, in Britain that changes after about 1830. Now these houses on the crescent, the first block, seem to have been built, started at any rate, about 1839 because there's a letter between Unit and Barry which discusses them. So that makes them really quite late. It, it, it's, it's, it's over by then, it's finished by then really, and that's what I mean by lingering Greek Revival style, right, okay. because it, it, it's, it's gone over the time that you'd expect really. And the rest of the Crescent is quiet classicism, are we into Italianates? It's, there are elements when, when I walk up down the Crescent, particularly on the first block, that, are remi that remind me a little bit of the warehouses of places like Manchester and Bradford. Is it a change in style? Is that we've got we've we've not we're no longer lingering with the Greeks. We've moved on. Yes, to put it in some sort of context, when architects of the nineteenth century came round to realizing the changes that were taking place in the scale of society, industrialization, and so on, I think they were looking to accommodate new industries, new technologies, a mass population uh, in buildings of a design which they were seeking was was a nineteenth century style. Uh, now there are two strands to this: the classical still uh, and also the Gothic. And that's a big complicated story in its, in its own right, uh, which would take us three more podcasts to, to complete at least. But basically, what happens to 18th century classical, uh, architects, instead of looking at ancient Greek and Rome, start looking at the uh, buildings of Renaissance Italy, um, Florence and Venice and Rome itself, of course. And what you're seeing in the Italian style, I think, in, uh, particularly in, 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 in the Crescent in Filey, is the conjuring up of those uh, great uh, urban palaces of, of places like Rome and Florence and so on. Though scaled down, obviously, uh, and the detail of those sorts of places being used. That's what we call Italian, or that particular form of Italian. It's a sort of palace style, really. But Filey, we don't get any Orientalism. Is that to do with, is that popular culture thing? You get a lot of it at places like Blackpool, a bit of it appears in Scarborough. I think that's a great question, actually, because um, a recent book by um, a man called Fred Gray, Gray argues in this book, which is called Building the Seaside, that the seaside becomes another place, as he puts it, and you get architecture of all sorts of exotic types appearing, and I think I agree with that. Putting that back to your question, I think you're right there in suggesting that that sort of idea of the seaside as another place uh, is particularly associated with, with mass holidays, which start to come in particularly strongly after the 1870s. The railways have already got uh, going, 
the 1870s we get bank holiday acts and uh, there are many many more, more uh, excursion trains at reasonably cheap prices people are starting to take uh, holidays for a week or so though not with pay yet uh, not uh, it's not a statutory requirement till I think the 1930s but uh, nevertheless uh, lots of places and Blackpool is the supreme example of it are catering for those mass holidays mass tastes and I think you do get all sorts of exotic architecture finally you don't think the key to understanding that is, uh, are the sorts of articles that appear in local newspapers, in some national newspapers, when they're usually headed things like watering places of the Yorkshire coast, and they're giving you a guide to what places are like. And when it comes to Filey, they usually say it's a quiet place. If you want to come for a holiday where you're not going to be bothered by crowds and crowds of people, you're not going to be bothered about sort of the kinds of entertainments you find in other places, come to Filey. It's quiet, it's beautiful, that's the place for you. And I think that's part of it. I don't know if you call it an exotic building. I think the only place of entertainment in Filey was what was the, the public baths and spa building. It later became known as Ackworth House, and in the ninth, late 20th, early 21st century, it became a, a care home. That was the, the public baths and spa saloon. When one says saloon, one immediately thinks of all those westerns and yes. the heroes yeah. striding through the little swingy doors, you know, ordering a whiskey. It's not that sort of saloon. It's a place of public congregation. There were hot and cold baths. There were vapour baths, that's a sort of Turkish bath, yeah. and probably from seawater that was pumped in from the sea to, to the, to the uh, baths and, 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 and spa saloon, because it stands right on the seafront. It was designed in very flamboyant French style, yeah. sometimes called Second Empire style. because It's, it's it, very it out of step with the rest of the architecture of Filey, isn't it? Completely, yeah. And nowhere, uh, interesting, nowhere follows it, does it? Obviously, it's a bit of a jumble down the front, isn't it? So you've got this yes. strange little Swiss cottage. Yes. You've got Downcliff, which is uh, slightly gothic. As, uh, it's yeah. almost vernacular, isn't it, mm. that one? Almost traditionally its appearance. It's strange, because that, that was the house built for John Unit, not his dad, John Wilkes Unit. So that when John Unit was over here looking after the estate, uh, he moved up and he had somewhere to live. Very plain sort of house really for somebody who was fairly well to do and one of the owners of great chunks of five. The saloon, the spa saloon, was um, a really uh, outstanding building. I'm glad to say that uh, it's, it's been given a, a refurbishment at the moment and uh, a good deal of that um, French Empire style is being retained and restored. It, it, it's great. It's one of the outstanding buildings. Westcliff at Whitby or Southcliff at Scarborough or the Crescent at Filey. These big white stucco buildings mm. with their pleasant gardens in front seems to be the seaside vernacular. This is what people would expect to find at the seaside, mm. particularly the Victorian seaside. Where does that come from? Is it John Nash and Regent's Park in London? Is it Brighton? It occurs at all of those places, and you could uh, mention one or two more as well. Margate, for instance. Mm. Margate, we associate now with popular holidays. Very, very exclusive sort of resort at the beginning of the 19th century. Uh, Margate and Brighton are one of the leading, are two of the, not one of them, is it? It's two of the leading uh, seaside resorts um, in the 18th and beginning of the 19th centuries. I think styles of architecture are developing there. But styles of architecture that are similar to that are also developing in the county town, uh, but also in, in some other well-to-do towns. So, you know, you can go to places like Manchester and Wakefield and Leeds and Beverley. Uh, you can see similar sorts of architecture. It's part of uh, an urban development, as one 
urban historians call it an urban renaissance, which is taking place during the 18th century. And along with that goes the building of crescents and squares, usually with their own chunk of garden in the middle of it. Now, if you find any early paintings uh, of these uh, developments. Uh, you can find them in Bristol and Bath of course as well. You will see that the gardens in front tend to have railings all around them and gates and that's because they were private uh, gardens for the use only of the people that lived in those squares or rented houses in those squares. I think it's that idea that carries over to some of the seaside resorts as well. West Cliff we're going off it a bit here, I suppose. Yeah, well, but Westcliff in uh, Whitby is a good example. You've got an, uh, and and you can put that along with Filey. Now at Filey, immediately that the um, crescent is built, the gardens are opened as well, and uh, but not to the public, only to residents of the crescent. And there's a gardens committee set up, so they're managed right from the beginning by a committee of people. Guess who's the chairman? Yes, happens to be John Unit. Mm. At Whitby, uh, that doesn't happen. It's promised for a long time, and there are um, uh, leaders in the local newspapers, the Whitby Gazette, saying things like, and, 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 and they do say these things, uh, it's time we had private gardens like this because we can keep out, quote, the unwashed. So it's a quite exclusionary sort of thing, this. In other words, these are gardens for well-to-do residents, not for the oi polloi like you and me. So it's open space there used to exclude the working class really and I think probably the lower middle class as well. It's only for the use of well-to-do people who can um, afford either to buy uh, or to come and lodge at these places for the summer. And some of that Humphrey Repton who was mm. alongside John Nash in London they laid out these squares of gardens. Is, is that the same ethos? And that, has that just basically transferred to the seaside? Yes, I think it has. Um, uh, it's not sort of, oh, I want to go out to Russell Square in London, say, and I think, oh, I'll build something similar at Whitby or whatever. Mm. Um, I think it's all part, as you say, of the general urban development which is occurring really from the early 18th right into the 19th century. And this house was sat in today, hmm. uh, Langford Villa, um, they pay a pound a year to have access to the Crescent Garden. Yes. And yet it's, the, it's only the Crescent Gardens to the south side of what is now Crescent Hill. So it just yes, struck me that they couldn't go in the bit with the bandstand. <laughs> yes, it's quite... Um, it's, it's, it's quite complicated, isn't it? Uh, and again, uh, going back to those sorts of articles that you see appearing in newspapers and guides, um, they're quite specific about what is happening in the gardens as well, that it's a place for people to promenade. Oh, the famous Sunday promenade photographs are in there as well. They are, yes. And during the week, uh, and, and when, when people are promenading, there's usually uh, a band that's playing there. It's usually a military band, I think. A German band was before the First World War, please. Yes, <laughs> you've got to be careful there, yes. That's when, of course, the German Ocean becomes the North Sea, for certain, yes. And they're playing, uh, again, according to the reports, um, a selection from the light classics and, and uh, military marches. So, I don't know how you promenade to a military march, but there you go. Let's talk about the people and mm. promenade up and down, we've, we've, we've touched on. So the kind of people who get attracted to Filey, we've both been rattling through all sorts of visitor lists recently. A couple of people have caught my eye, obviously Frederick Delius, the great Bradford mm. composer, probably one of the outstanding British composers of, of all time. F.S. Jackson, the famous Yorkshire and England cricketer. Earl of Ranfurly, one-time governor of New Zealand, came across several times from Ireland. The Earl Waldegrave, now, you, is it Waldegrave? No, Walgrave. Walgrave, he's so posh that he dropped the D. 
Absolutely, yes. <laughs> so yes. Earl Walgrave. Yes. And my fav- my favourite of the lot is the Countess of Westmoreland, who I think should be perhaps a steam train coming out of Euston at 10 o'clock every morning. Mm. Does that represent the, the type of visit that finally attracts, and, and when? how long does that roll on for? Yeah, I think it does. Um, it starts early and it continues. There's an estate agent in Filey called Phyllis Kirk, and Phyllis Kirk buys up big chunks of the Crescent, develops it for himself, I think, but also is a letting agent for other people in the season. And he describes himself as an estate agent for the nobility and gentry. Now, of course, he's not going to say... Why wouldn't you? Uh, well, yeah, no. <laughs> it, 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 you know, as, 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 a, as an advertisement in newspapers and other publications, he's not going to say, you know, uh, <laughs> I deal with the lowest and low in society. <laughs> cheap um, and cheap. He's going to say, I, I, I advertise him for the nobility and gentry. But there is an element of truth in that, I think, as well. Um, there's the names that you mentioned there. Uh, when you look at visitor lists in local newspapers and... There's lots of local newspapers. Eventually, Filey gets its own. I think the Filey Post, for instance. The Scarborough Gazette, uh, for instance, also mentions people in Filey, as does the Whitby Gazette, as does the Hull Packet, another uh, localish newspaper. Um, and when you look through those sorts of visitor lists, uh, you see that there is quite a, a proportion of local gentry but also actual nobility who come from farther afield. So the... I think it's the Duke of St Albans comes here as well. Mm-hmm. The St Albans visit, visit Scarborough too, you can find them there. So there's this tradition of, of gentry and nobility visiting the coast. This starts in the 18th century with Scarborough, but it continues in Filey right into the 19th century. But it's not just the nobility and gentry either. You're getting other people, that the well-heeled, well-moneyed people who've made a lot of money out of commerce and industry, both in the northeast of England and in West Yorkshire. So other people that come here, for instance, in the early days, in the first days of, of, of Filey's being opened up, are the back houses of the northeast. They're really well-to-do bankers, uh, very important bankers from up in the sort of uh, Durham area. There's also people such as the Gots of Leeds, the equivalent today of multimillionaire uh, businessmen. And, and at the same time, there are also some local uh, noble families as well. So the Earl Fitzwilliam, who owns Wentworth Woodhouse, for instance, uh, visits Filey too. So it's that mixture, that very interesting mixture of business, I mean really big business, commerce, aristocracy and, and often very local gentry. Yes, there's a wonderful guide uh, to Filey, published in the 1860s, where the author, uh, and, and you can feel it coming across in the print, that he's obviously goggle-eyed. He says he wanders out to the brig one day and he sees Cardinal Wiseman, the Archbishop of York, and Lord John Russell there, all on one day. And also, he goes on to say, several MPs who are holidaying here in the recess. So, yeah, I think it does attract those sorts of people. And what is interesting, I think, is continues to attract those sorts of people too. And we go to, what, 1900, when just straight across the, the street from where we are now, mm. it's, it's on South Crescent, we get Queen Victoria's granddaughter and her husband, Prince Louis Battenberg, and their children, Alice, who becomes mother of the Duke of Edinburgh, Louise, who becomes Queen of Sweden, and Louis, who becomes Earl Mountbatten, the mm. last Viceroy of India. Mm. And then in 1910, uh, you get the Grand Duke and Duchess of Hesse, later Princess Alice, the uh, daughter of Queen Victoria. It strikes me, we spoke in the last podcast about people disappearing to the south of France, to Morocco, to Switzerland, and yet this is late, isn't it? 1900, 1910, 
I'd have expected those kind of visitors here perhaps 20, 30 years earlier. Yes, it is very interesting, that, isn't it? Uh, and what we said in the first uh, podcast is it, substantially correct. As holiday resorts on the coast, uh, including the Yorkshire coast, of course, become more and more the venues for mass holidays, uh, how do you achieve some sort of social closure and separate yourself from those sorts of people if you are uh, uh, in a rather exalted position in society? Well, you do that by looking abroad uh, and looking for places where other people aren't going to go. This doesn't happen in filing. That, that I find really quite interesting. I'm somewhat at a loss as to explain why it should be. You you do get... Notice that date, 1910, before uh, the, it's the Duke... The, is it the Grand Duke of Hesse? That's right. Uh, yeah. ...comes along here. And it's not a flying visit. Well, we'll stay overnight there because we're going to open a, a lifeboat uh, uh, station tomorrow and then they're off again. No, um, the Times of London reports, for example, that they're, they're back in London after a two-week stay at Filey. So so they're they're here for a couple of weeks, not just to open something and do something like that. And finally, I think, continues to attract those sorts of people after the First War too. You can see that even in the 1920s, there's still a lot of quite well-to-do people who are coming to holiday at Filey. Again, one can go back to some of the Victorian comments in the Victorian press on that, maybe, saying that Filey's a quiet place. It doesn't have sort of kiss-me-quick hats and, and uh, strange uh, musical acts on the sands. Um, well, it does eventually, actually. There's something of that aloofness of Filey as a place, I think, that attracts only the well-heeled. What is interesting is that in the 1930s, Billy Butlin comes along and wishes to cite a holiday camp. Uh, I hesitate slightly there, because I was going to say in Filey. Strictly speaking, it is. It's actually near a Hunmanby, just down the coast. Nevertheless, it's Filey Council uh, that uh, can give the uh, yay or nay to this plan. And their first reaction is, no, this will bring Filey down. Take it down market turn away some of our best-paying guests. And that's a very sort of 19th century, very sort of Victorian uh, reaction. It's almost like the reaction to the arrival of the railways. It is. It's, it's exactly like that. That's right, yeah. Eventually they relent, of course, and uh, but then Butlin is thwarted by, by Adolf Hitler, I think, because <laughs> in 1939 wars declared and the holiday camp partly completed is taken over and used uh, for, by the uh, Ministry of War. But after the war, the, the camp gets going. And interestingly, Billy Butlin has perhaps the last big villa in Filey, uh, situated right on the coast, and it becomes one of his favourite uh, holiday locations. So it lasts, really, as a quite exclusive resort, certainly up to the First War, and, and it that travels on into the 1920s as well, I think. I don't know that there's many other resorts on the York... Well, there's none on the Yorkshire coast. I don't know that there's many others uh, in England that, that go on that long and that exclusive. So here we are in 2019, in another century altogether... Does all factors we've talked about, does it have any relevance whatsoever to Filey in 2019? Because partly the self-image of the town and people's perception of the town is still driven, arguably, I'll make the argument, by the architecture of the Crescent. Perhaps less so by its history and the visitors because that's probably slipped from, from current memory. But there is still this idea that is a quieter place, possibly because more, possibly, possibly more because it's largely still undeveloped. It's a quiet place where you can bring the dog, you can bring the family, the big beach, there isn't the crowds. So does the social tone of Filey that was set in the 1800s still affect how people think about the town today? It's a difficult question to answer that one, isn't it, really? Mm. 
I That's think, why I asked you. Anyway. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think um, th- th- there's something in it, in, in the sense that Filey was never developed uh, with a lot of amusement arcades, fairground sorts of activities, shooting galleries, uh, minstrel shows and things like this. That didn't happen in Filey at all, really. Yes, I know you can find old um, uh, postcards with old photographs to show, and occasionally there's a Piero uh, show on the beach and so on. But that is... Nothing like what you find in somewhere like uh, uh, Scarborough, say, by 1920, say. It's certainly nothing like at all what you would find in Blackpool, for instance. So there's actually very little to do in Filey. I think that probably has something uh, to do with it, that, you know, you, it's not a place... Lots of people come, it's not a place for mass holidays, Filey itself, because there's not much to do there. I think when people come into this part of the area around Filey, that they're coming to some of the caravan parks and the static mobile homes, as we call them nowadays, the chalets. They're coming to Butlins. Uh, and, and the entertainment is outside of the centre of Filey, that old Victorian and even older centre of the, the, the fishing village. That's what's kept it separate, I think. And, and I think it has something of a reputation today also as a place for family holidays, mm. not for places where you're going to get a lot of yahoos who are going to get drunk in the evening, be sick in your garden and burgle your house, you know. Very much a, fem- a family-friendly sort of place, I think. So maybe some of that does uh, rub off. Uh, maybe what also rubs off too is, is what is a divide almost between the older village of Filey and the development of the Crescent. Because that's another thing about the Crescent. It's very much kept its uni- unity. The, there has been some rather unfortunate um, redevelopments of some of the houses there. But looking at it overall, it's pretty much intact. Lots of its railings, for instance, are intact as well. They didn't go off in, to help the war effort, to help fight Hitler in the, in, in the, uh, in the war years. You know, it, it's retained much of its um, uh, metalwork, for example. That's mainly because it's the parts to stop people falling down it is various holes yes and luckily enough of that survived that if there was a campaign and there should be a campaign in my opinion to to reinstate the ironwork then it would be relatively straightforward apart from the cash element to do yes it would and it's probably the one thing that's missing is the gardens and the railings but apart from that as you said the gardens the crescent garden when i say gardens i mean the private gardens as opposed to the crescent gardens yes it's still there it is yes and and more so i think than, than many a place um South Cliff uh, at Scarborough, for instance, retains something of that air as well. That's pretty good. But if you go to somewhere like Bridlington, it really doesn't. It's gone. Hornsey, it, 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 it's, it's uh, cruel to say it's been devastated, the, the seafront there, but, but there's not much of the original seafront. There was never a huge amount of development anyway, but what there was, it has, again, has, has gone. Certainly Scarborough, South Cliff, and, and then finally, above all, retains much of that earlier development. Conservation-wise... It seems to be quite well. I mean, I live on the Crescent, so I'm aware of, we're in a conservation area, and people are generally respectful of of, of that ethos. Conservation-wise, looking forward, is is it vitally important? Do you think it is? Is it becoming more important that we retain areas like West Clifford's with the South Clifford Scarborough and and the Crescent of Filey? I think people enjoy going to those areas now, much more than they did, say, in the 1950s, 1960s. I think there's a much greater appreciation of Victorian architecture now that you're into the 21st century. I think there probably was it by the 1990s. In the immediate post-war years, you know, the late 40s, early 1950s, I think Victorian architecture in particular was in deep disregard. Nobody had much of a sympathy for it, uh, except some of the outstanding monuments in, in places like London and, and, and the county capitals. But in terms of most of its 
housing and smaller scale architecture, it was being wiped away, I think, and uh, modern conceptions of the town or city were being built in its place. I think now the, the um, tendency to do that sort of thing has changed and Victorian architecture is considered very much as part of our heritage and there's very much an emphasis, I think, uh, on seaside heritage as well when it comes to looking at uh, resorts on the coast. And it's part of the future, hopefully. I would have thought so, yes. You take a place what, like the, the house we're sitting in now, it could have so easily have gone in the 1960s uh, and some hideous tower block put up in its place. Well, perhaps you wouldn't have got a tower block. Or perhaps you would. Bridlington got one. Mm. And it, it's a sort of, you know, I'll stick my neck out here and say, uh, it's, it looks and still is a blot on the landscape. Finally, it doesn't have that. And it's because of that, um, not quaint, but that really rather dignified uh, feel to the place. I think that's what people value. And I think it's very important it got kept, because you look at Filey's fishing heritage, for example, which was largely mm. demolished. It was wiped away. So I, I do wonder whether these areas, like the Crescent and Southcliff, were ever in serious peril, or whether, like, say, at Bridlington, they've been completely developed, uh, overwhelmed almost, by by um, development of, of some of the arcade. We've got away with it in some respects, and, and we need to really take care of it as the future goes along. And I think, on that note, thanks very much, George, once again. It's a pleasure.